We have been studying the church. We have looked at the universal, invisible church as well as the local church. I just want to point something out to us this morning before we begin the message. As we sing, and I, I just took a moment to listen. As we lift our voices and we sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Because we are a local church, but part of the universal or invisible church, we join our voices with every other church of the Lord Jesus Christ around the world who sings praises to him. And more than that, those saints that have gone before us who are now before the throne, as they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We come in with the descant. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a privilege it is to be part of the covenant people of God. Yeah. On Sunday mornings, we've been in a short topical series of messages on the church of Jesus Christ. We've considered the church in its purpose, its integrity, and its strategy. And today we conclude this series as we consider the church in its congregational conduct. Our text this morning is from Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. First Thessalonians is one of the earliest books of the New Testament written. It was written only about 20 years after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And in this letter, Paul does a lot of things. He, he writes to restore hope in the believers there uh, that, that the promise of salvation is, is yes for those believers who are living, but also for those who have died in the Lord. He assures the congregation, the church there of the authenticity of his ministry and the authenticity of the ministry of Silas and Timothy as well. And what we'll see today is he instructs the church as to how they should live as Christ's bride until he returns. So we come to the text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to discover how believers should behave or how congregations should conduct themselves. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 22. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. God, we pray that you would add your blessing to your word and the preaching of it. Hide this preacher behind the cross of Christ. In his precious name we pray. Amen. These verses come to us in a series of rapid fire statements 
and they are to be viewed exactly as what they are. These are commands. Now it doesn't say thou shalt or thou shalt not, like maybe we may be accustomed to hearing a command, but these are commands of scripture and no less commands than any other portion of scripture. So we want to pay attention this morning as, as we hear the voice of our Lord Jesus through Paul's pen. The first three commands, these three snappy commands, may be grouped together, verses 16, 17, and 18. I find it interesting that it's two words, three words, and four words in those commands. But anyway, that the, the, the first three are maybe grouped together, and then the final verses form a group as well, verses 19 through 22. Uh, the first group, the first commands are positive commands. Do this. And the second group are negative commands. Do not do this. So we come to the first three commands and they waste no words. They may even be called terse. <laughs> they are very short. And they have a superlative nature. Now, what does that mean? They, they have a, a superlative nature. We hear words like always, endless, in everything, in all seasons, without interruption, in all circumstances. So these have a superlative nature, always, endlessly, without ceasing, in everything. And, and they are followed, these three commands are followed by a motivating statement, which is distributed to each of the three commands. And we'll see that when we get there. Let's begin in verse 16. Rejoice always. An easy verse to memorize. If you're looking to memorize lots of verses. Jesus wept. I would recommend that one first. Rejoice always. This is a good, good number two to, to come to. Rejoice always. But we need to note here that this command, rejoice always, is not an isolated command. We see this command similarly stated in other texts of Scripture. Now, you don't have to turn there, but Philippians 4, and we will be referring to Philippians 4 quite often this morning. Philippians 4, 4 says this, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It was not only an important command. Paul said, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Romans 5, 3. We rejoice in our sufferings. Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Romans 5, 2. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we see this command other places. And it, and it may seem odd to our ears at first. But we need to recognize this command is in keeping with the rest of the Bible, the other commands of Scripture. Someone may ask, well, how can God command me to rejoice? I've heard people say that. You can't command joy. Well, nobody told God that. And he made you, so he knows. He commands joy. So, so how can God command? But, but here's what we really ask when we, when we come to that question. How can God command me to rejoice? What if I'm having a bad day? What, what, if, what if I'm having a string of bad days all run together? And, and I recognize even this morning with this group gathered that there are some here who find we find ourselves in grim or grueling circumstances at this very moment. 
And the command may sound so foreign to your ears, rejoice. And you may think, how can I rejoice? I hope that we see from the scripture how we may obey this command and how we might rejoice. Is it, is it that God is saying here, even if you're having a hard day, just put on a smile and fake it. Just come with a phony, just, just bring Bring the joy, fake it till you make it, so to speak, right? I mean, is this what God is saying? Just, just put on a counterfeit happiness. No, this, this rejoicing, this is not a command to be happy always. And, and we know that, that that would not be possible for us in this world to be happy always. This says rejoice always. And this rejoicing is something deeper than Happiness. It's something more enduring. It's something that is not diminished by the conditions around us. Rejoicing is rooted and grounded in the unchanging hope that we have in Christ Jesus. So our joy can be full. Our joy can be complete. The hope of the covenant people of God should be continually, or to use the words of our text, always at the surface. Never far from our thinking, the thoughts of our joy in Christ Jesus. And this is this, this hope that we have in Him, this is our true source of joy. This, this is, uh, we could say our true source of joy, we could say our source of true joy. An underlying truth, which is foundational to this command. As a matter of fact, this is a foundational truth to all three of these commands in our text. An underlying truth is found in Romans 8, 28. And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. God is working all things together. Even that thing I'm going through, yes, even that thing you're going through that is so difficult, God is working even that for good. Now this knowledge that, that God is for us, then who can be against us? This knowledge that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, this should develop in every Christian an unwavering, unfaltering unfailing joy and the church should emanate with rejoicing every local body of believers every gathering of, of believers in Christ Jesus should be ever rejoicing even as we mourn even as we hurt even as we experience loss a loss that is common to all of mankind, but, but we don't mourn like the world. We don't suffer and grieve like the world as those who have no hope. We can mourn the loss, even the loss of a dear loved one. We can mourn and still rejoice in the goodness of God. Some of you, I look at your faces, some of you have embodied this very thing. Rejoice. Always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. 
And again, this commandment is not unique. This, this is not unique to this text. We see it in Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In everything by prayer. Now, there are some who have taken this command, pray without ceasing, and they've taken it too far. There was a group in the fourth century called the Eukites, and they believed that prayer was the only thing for a believer. No church, no worship, no preaching, no sacrament, only prayer. And they had other heretical beliefs, but they took a good thing. They took a good thing like prayer, and they took it to a place that it was, that was too far. And that's not what pray without ceasing commands us. We also know that, that pray without ceasing doesn't mean that we are continually kneeling or that we're walking around with folded hands and heads bowed and eyes closed bumping into everything. This is not to indicate that we never speak to anyone except God. Pray without ceasing means the only thing you can ever say is to God. It does mean, though, Christians, it does mean, church, that prayer should be close at hand. When someone asks, when's the last time you prayed? The answer should never be that long ago. It should be, it should be recently. When we have good news, pray. When we have bad news, pray. When we have troubled spirits, pray. When we have a crisis or a celebration, the human instinct is to go and tell some other person. The, the, the human instinct is to, to share the news, to share the joy, to, to seek someone to help bear the burden, to reach out for help in a circumstance. We typically turn to another person in those moments. And Christians, you should turn to your brothers and sisters in the church, but they should be your second call. Amen. The first call, as it were, should be to call upon God to cry out to him. Prayer should be Christians. Prayer should be a reflex. Prayer should be a reflex for every believer. And, and this is a good test for the condition of your soul. Is prayer a reflexive thing in me? Prayer should be natural. It should be often practiced in the church. I have a friend who says this as a, as a joke. Let's pray about that. Now, now, let's pray about that should never be seen to us as a joke or some absurd comment. We should be comfortable enough fellow members of Waco Family Baptist Church to say when, when someone when someone comes to us and says I'm concerned about this issue I'm concerned about this health issue well let's pray about that let's pray about that right now I'm, I'm looking for a job or I'm looking for a spouse or I'm looking for a place to live or, or I have this need well let's pray about that let's pray about that right now whatever the need is we should easily and quickly and Together, be able to go to the Lord in prayer. I fear that the reason we may not be comfortable praying together in that manner as church members is because we are not praying enough privately. 
Church, God, God is good. Amen. And God desire, God wants to give good gifts to his children. And he has ordained a means for giving good gifts. For pouring out his grace upon us. And the means that God has ordained for giving good gifts to his church is that we would ask him. Go to him and ask him. Ask him to meet our needs. Yes, he's already promised that he will meet our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He's made that promise, but he tells us to ask. Ask him to meet our needs. Ask him to ease a burden. Ask him to help us. Lord, it seems that you've got, you're trying to teach me something. Help me to learn this. Help me to learn this quickly. Help me to learn this well. We need to ask God for the salvation of our family and our friends and our loved ones. We need to ask God. Yes, what is he doing? He's bringing glory to himself and bringing glory to Jesus Christ. But we need to pray and ask him to bring glory to himself and to Jesus Christ. God's way of working is that his people pray. And, and, and when we pray, Christians, the power is not in the people. And the power is not in the prayers that we say. The power is in the one to whom we pray. The power is God's. He has ordained prayer as a channel of blessing. And when we pray as we should, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, much. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Verse 18, in everything give thanks. We go back to Philippians 4. It's interesting how many times Philippians 4 is a callback to the first Thessalonians text. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Thanksgiving, thanksgiving being a kind of prayer, it should also be on our lips. And this command also rests on the truth of Romans 8, 28. Is God working everything for his glory and for our good? Is he doing that? Then express to him gratitude for that work and for what he is doing. But what if right now at this present moment, it doesn't feel like a thanksgiving matter? What if this moment doesn't feel like a thank worthy moment? What can I make up a word? What if this doesn't feel like a thank-worthy moment? That's the very moment you need to give thanks. That's the very moment you need to give thanks, reminding yourself of God's sovereign power and, and God's providential goodness. This, this is an example, Christians, of how prayer shapes you. Don't think prayer shapes God. <laughs> what, an what an absurd idea that prayer is going to change God. Prayer shapes us and as we pray, as we pray and give thanks, we are shaped to recognize God's sovereign power and his providential goodness. Thanksgiving is acknowledging God's goodness and his glory for what he has done. He ordained that we should 
ask him for our provisions. He decreed to provide us what we needed according to Christ uh, Jesus. And then he calls us to give thanks to him for his providence. And we can give thanks even for difficult things. We can say, God, I, I don't see the good in this thing right now, in, in the loss, in the difficulty, in the situation. I, don't, I can't see the good right now, but I know that you are good. You are a good and benevolent God, and you are working all things together for my good. And I thank you for that promise, and I thank you for the good that I can't even see yet. We can thank God, as the text commands us, in everything. And the scripture teaches us here that to not be thankful is no small thing. Unthankfulness, did you realize that unthankfulness is a mark of the ungodly? Unthankfulness is a mark of the ungodly. Now, many of us know Romans 1 marks out some characteristics and behaviors of the ungodly. It says this in Romans 1, 21, for even though they knew God, they did not acknowledge him as God or honor him as God, nor give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. They did not acknowledge him as God, nor give thanks. The idea there is if you acknowledge God as God, you will, you should, you must give thanks. Unthankfulness is a mark of the ungodly. I, I have noticed in the world so many people who have figured out that it's good, that, that it's at least virtue signaling to be a thankful person. But being unwilling to honor God as God, people say ridiculous things like this. Thank you, earth. Or a man who catches a fish, thanks the fish for the meal. <laughs> My wife doesn't like when I use this word, but there's no other word. That is so stupid. That's in the King James Bible. If you need it, I can give you the reference. <laughs> Listen, the fish didn't volunteer for the plate. The man tricked the fish, brought the fish in, killed the fish while the fish resisted. I mean, that's all the flopping around. It's resisting. Cooked the fish, put it on the plate. By the way, all of that should be done. I'm a Louisiana boy. That should be done regularly. But don't act as though you can thank the fish for the sacrifice. That's like robbing somebody at gunpoint and then saying, thank you for the gift. <laughs> there is this virtue signaling that we see in the world. I want to be a thankful person, but I don't want to give that thanks to the one who, to whom it belongs. So we just send out this amorphous thanks into the universe of nothingness. It's ridiculous. You know what it is? It's, it's virtue signaling, but it is not being thankful. It is not thanksgiving because it hits no target. The ungodly are ungrateful. God's people give thanks in everything. 
Now, some of you wondered how, how if I'm to pray without ceasing, because that was the verse before, how am I going to fill the time? I mean, I pray, boy, two, two seconds in, I'm out of stuff to say. You know how you can fill the time? Thanksgiving. Let me know if you run out of stuff to be thankful for. And I can look in your life just from the outside and I can point out some stuff that you didn't, that you didn't, just let, let us, you never run out of stuff to be thankful for. Extolling God's goodness should be ready on the lips of every Christian. And the local church ought to have a constant echo of praise in its corridors. It is a command of God, but it is also a privilege to give thanks in everything. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in everything. And then in verse 18, we have this phrase, which applies to what comes before it. It applies to, to the rejoicing, to the praying, and to the thanksgiving. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. So we can read it this way. Rejoice always, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in everything, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. You see how this is distributed to each of those commands. Uh, someone listening to this message may be looking for God's will. You, you, you want to find the will of God. Now what you're seeking is the secret mind of God, which you will never find. Because the scripture tells us the secret things belong to the Lord. But the revealed things are for us and for our children. The revealed things. I appreciate the fact that our brother before he read earlier said, hear the revealed will of God. That's what we have in the scripture is the revealed will of God. And we have here before us God's will for us revealed. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. This is God's will for you. And we have this prepositional phrase, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. What does it mean? What does the words in Christ Jesus add to this command? To this statement? It, it, the, the addition, the benefit is twofold here. First, these things are by the command of Christ. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks because it is the will of God. This is the command of the word of Christ. So that's the first sense in which this is in Christ Jesus. And secondly, in Christ Jesus adds a special emphasis for the believer, a special emphasis for the Christian, for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, we read this and every person who, every person who draws breath owes God thanksgiving. And every person who draws breath owes God praise for even the common graces like sunshine and rain. Every person owes thanksgiving to God for those things. But how much more Christians do you, who are the recipients of the covenant graces of God, how much more do we, who have been brought up out of the miry pit and our feet set on the solid rock, how much more we who are no longer enemies, but are children by the grace of adoption, how much more should we give thanks? Yeah. 
How much more should we rejoice? How much more should we pray? So Christians, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and in everything. Give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Now, as we've considered the first three commandments stated in the positive, do this, do this, do this. Now we come to the next three stated in the negative. Don't do this. Verse 19, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, don't despise prophecy. Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. These are in the negative. Verse 19. And verse 19, don't quench, do not, do not quench the Spirit. Uh, it serves as an overall or a blanket statement that, that covers the next two. How, how might you quench the spirit? Well, you could quench the spirit by despising prophecy. Or you could quench the spirit by participating in evil. So, so those other two would fall under this as an umbrella. But we, we have this to consider. Do not quench the spirit. The term quench, it should bring to our mind... The quenching of a fire. And we're reminded here that the Holy Spirit is called a fire in Scripture. We remember that God showed himself in the wilderness in a pillar of fire. We remember that on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to indwell the believers. That he manifested his presence visually as cloven tongues of fire. John the Baptist said... I baptize you with water, but there is one coming, speaking of Jesus Christ, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And in Hebrews, we read that our God is a consuming fire. So this quench, we should think of fire. Now, let's just think for a minute. And some of you, if you don't listen, if you don't follow, you're going to think, what did he say? Listen, if we take quenching the Spirit to mean stopping or ending like a water would quench a match or, or a bucket of water would quench a campfire. If we take it to mean stops or ending, then no Christian, no human, and nothing in all of creation could quench the Holy Spirit. You see where I'm going with that? I, God is all powerful and God's hand will not be stayed. Who can stop God? <laughs> Who can stop God? So if we take quench the Spirit to mean we stop the work of God, no, we've taken that the wrong way. This is not to say that we stop God in what He does we do know that the scripture speaks and tells us that a lost person can do what the Bible refers to as blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And this is a damnable sin. But none of the elect, no redeemed Christian can blaspheme the Spirit. But Christians, you can grieve the Holy Spirit and you can, as this text tells us, quench the Holy Spirit when we understand quench rightly. So we want to get the picture that's painted here, the picture of, of pouring that quenching water on the things in our life which the Holy Spirit has set ablaze. 
We're not dousing the Holy Spirit himself and stopping him, but we can stop the things that he has set on fire in our lives. We don't quench him so much as we quench what he has done in our lives. This is a negative commandment. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. I'm going to remind you, some of you, some of you might be new, but I'm going to remind some of you of one of my favorite words. This is a latotes. I know you were wondering when it was going to come back. This is a latotes. Remember, a latotes is making a statement by denying its opposite. Making a statement by denying its opposite. And we remember that there are not a few latotes in Scripture. And we should not forget that this figure of speech. You see what I did there? We should not forget, which means remember. There are not a few in scripture, which means there are many. This is a latotes. So in stating, do not quench the Holy Spirit. We are commanded at the same time that we should cherish the Holy Spirit. That we should, rather than pour water, we should keep our, our kindling dry. We should keep the, the tinder and the fodder dry and ready. Quenching the Holy Spirit, do not quench the Holy Spirit, tells us to cherish the Holy Spirit. Quenching the Holy Spirit hinders our obedience to the earlier commands. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. How are we going to do that when we're quenching the Holy Spirit? And remember, quenching the Spirit. This, this command was given, this is an early book, like early in the church. And this was written during a time when the Holy Spirit was working in a special way to affirm and confirm the ministry of the apostles, the, the writing of the New Testament scripture, and we know that those works of the Spirit that were employed in that day are no longer employed in the church today since the closing of the canon of the Scripture. But there are, I'm saying this because somebody said, I'm real nervous because you're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. They probably were scared I might say the word Holy Ghost. Whew, that scares Baptists. That scares us. Listen. There are works of the Holy Spirit, ordinary operations of the Spirit that he does today and that he does in the life of every believer. The Holy Spirit is working. He is still active. He's not done. We thank God for that. Uh, what are the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit that we're talking about? Things like enlightening the mind. Have you read that text of Scripture and said, I've never seen that before, but all of a sudden it just came alive to me, the work of the Holy Spirit. We should pray for that, by the way. Enlightening the mind to understand the Scripture, sanctifying and conforming us to the image of Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Comforting our souls, the work of the Holy Spirit. And Christians, you can decrease or even stop these works of the Spirit by quenching these works in your life. Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God cannot be fully and finally quenched in a true believer. Amen? The Holy Spirit cannot be completely 
put out, if you will, in a true believer. But, but Christians, let us not become overconfident and presumptuous. You are not intended to have an assurance while you are actively quenching the spirit. When we are quenching the spirit, we need to, we need to be, we need to fear God and stop quenching the spirit that we might renew that assurance. To test the genuineness of our faith, we have to stop quenching the spirit and start cherishing the spirit. Verse 20, we got to hurry. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Now that made somebody else nervous. <laughs> Do not despise prophetic utterances. Now we need to hurry at this point, but, but I think this is very simple for us to understand. One of the primary ways we quench the spirit is by neglecting or despising prophetic utterance. This is one of the main things that we do. Now for the Thessalonian Christians, for the Thessalonian church, <coughs> excuse me, they were still hearing new prophecies. The Holy Spirit was still speaking through the apostles. The Holy Scriptures were still being written and they needed to have a respect for those prophecies and by the way, again, I, I just said they need to have a respect for those prophecies. What am I doing here? I'm acknowledging this too is a latotes. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Means you should respect and honor prophetic utterances. Okay, but the application of this for them was slightly different than it is for us. Well, they, they were to honor and respect the word of the apostles and the holy scriptures. What are we to do? Honor and respect the word of the apostles. And the Holy, which is which is the Holy Scriptures. So, so for us, the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the prophetic utterances. Now, we can go into great detail. We don't have time, but we can go into great detail to show how prophecy are are the the prophets may be used to refer to Scripture, and we are to cherish the Holy Scripture. And church, not only should we cherish Holy Scripture, yep. I went long last week. Let's see how we can do today. I'm blaming you. Uh, I, I knew a man one time that would never set anything on top of his Bible. He would never put anything on top of his Bible. And he said, that's how I honor the word. Do you see the silliness of that? Do you see how silly that is? Now, by the way, now this is nice cowhide. Most of you will have a nice cow, nice cover of some sort. Maybe, maybe some of you have your name on that. As nice as that is, this is not God's word. It's this stuff in here. <laughs> it's not about, I don't want to set something on top of my Bible. It's I need to have it open. I need to be reading it. And I need to get what's in here in me. I need it in me. That's how we honor and cherish the prophetic utterance. Okay, we got to get back to this. Not only do we honor and cherish the written word of God, but those men who are fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit, who are called and appointed by the church to preach the word of God, they are rightly called prophets. What I am doing now is prophesying, and what I am is a prophet 
And we are to not despise the prophetic utterance. Not only the written word of God, but the preached word of God. Now, as a prophet in 2024, I am not foretelling things that are yet to come, but I am foretelling what God has said. And that is what a modern prophet does. So we should not despise the written word. We should not despise the preached word because both proclaim to us the living word, Jesus Christ. Verse 21 gives us some insight into what it is to not despise prophetic utterance. Don't despise prophetic utterance, but do this instead. Examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. We are to listen to the preaching of the word, but we are not to listen mindlessly, Christians. We are to listen and we are to examine everything carefully. Now, I heard someone say one time, I, I, I taught something and they said, that teaching just doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit. You may remember this. And I said, it doesn't, because I'm thinking, how does it not fit into scripture? It's very biblical teaching. They said, no, it doesn't fit into my thinking. We are not to examine everything carefully according to our thinking, because it's not unfit. We are to examine everything carefully in light of the word of God. So we are to listen carefully, examine everything carefully. Church, we should be deep thinkers and, and learning to be deeper thinkers because we, we should have, we should be developing the best minds because we should be rehearsed in examining everything carefully and holding only to that which is good. And of course, jettisoning, jettisoning, throwing away that which is bad. The final command comes to us. It's another way that we might quench the spirit if we fail to obey. Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. This is not only abstaining from evil in doctrine, bringing forward the thinking from from not despising prophetic utterance from examining everything and holding to that which is good and then abstaining from evil in doctrine. It's, it's that, it includes that, but it's more than that. It's every form of evil. Too often Christians, we try to ease right up to the line of sin. Now I saw this in my children when they were very young. We, we lived on a busy street in Hempstead, Texas. And there were, there were uh, divisions in the concrete and we would go out to the street and we would say, do not cross this line. This is the line, don't cross the line. Do you know where my kids play? Balancing on that line. They play right up next to it. And Christians, we do that so often. By the way, we had like an acre, a whole acre of yard. A whole, a whole place for them to be and they played right by the line. Christians, how silly is that to neglect that whole yard of fun, that whole yard of enjoyment and to squeeze up next to the line. Don't we do that? Don't we do that, Christians? I, now tell me exactly where the sin, exactly where's the sin line? So is this sin? What are we asking? How close can I get? 
Can I ease right up to it? And we're neglecting the fact that Jesus Christ came that we might have abundant life. To use my illustration, a whole yard full of fun, full of fun and enjoyment, a whole wonderful life living in Christ, living in obedience. And you want to live right up next to the line? No. Abstain from every form of evil, evil in word, evil in deed, evil in thought. All sorts of evil must be avoided. Now, it's very careful. I've heard this verse used. You shouldn't do that thing you're doing because I think it's evil and I say you should abstain from all evil. This is not a prohibition of abstaining from some man-made idea of evil. Where do we, how do we know what is evil? God's word tells us. How do we know what is sin? God's word tells us. Not some other person and their idea. When they say something, we compare it to the word of God. And then we abstain from all that God's word tells us is evil, is sin. I'm, I'm hurting. I'm trying. So church, what hindrances are there for us from obedience to these commands? What, what blocks our rejoicing, our praying, our thanksgiving? How do we, in day-to-day in -day life, quench the spirit? What, what robs our rejoicing? What paralyzes our praying? What thwarts our thanksgiving? I have a few suggestions. This is not an exhaustive list, but it will at least get us thinking about how we can obey God's commands here better. First, and perhaps fundamentally, we are kept from obedience. We are kept from rejoicing, from praying, from giving thanks, etc. by unbelief, by unbelief. Now, what I'm saying is we don't believe as we should. Now, we may be believers. We may be believers in Christ. But in that moment of sin, we doubt. You cannot tell me in a moment of sin, you were not unbelieving in some level, in some way. In that moment of sin, we doubt. What, what do we doubt? We doubt God's word. We doubt God's power. We doubt God's goodness. Just very quickly, what does that mean? We doubt God's word. I know what he said, but I don't know. I, I, you know what? I think I might be the exception. I mean, I know all those warnings about flee from evil and flee youthful lust. And, and I, I know all those warnings. But I, I think I'm smarter than that. I think I'm stronger than that. I think I'm too spiritual for that. And just let me remind you. Solomon, Samson, and David all fell in sin. The strongest man who ever lived, the wisest man who ever lived, and a man after God's own heart. Now if you're stronger than Samson, wiser than Solomon, and closer to God than David, well you're not. And they weren't the exception to the warnings in Scripture, and neither are you. We quench the Spirit. We cease rejoicing. We cease praying. We cease giving thanks when we doubt the Word of God. When we doubt the power of God. I, I see the enemy coming upon me. I see the consequences. I see whatever it is. And I don't think God can get me out of this. And we doubt. 
or we doubt the goodness of God. I think God is powerful, but does he love me enough to rescue me from this tragedy that I see before me? Does he? We, in these moments of sin, we doubt we're not rejoicing, we're not praying, we're not giving thanks, we're quenching the spirit. Matthew Poole says this, commenting on the, specifically on the quenching of the spirit. Let me just paraphrase it. A fire can be quenched in two ways, by dousing or by neglecting. Now we got some guys that are going camping this week. Y'all need to hear that. A fire can be quenched in two ways, by dousing or by neglecting. If you leave that fire and you don't add kindling, if you leave that fire and you don't add fuel, you don't add fodder, you don't add something to keep it going, then it will go out. And Christians, we neglect. When we neglect the means of grace, we quench the spirit. Like leaving a fire to burn out without adding fuel. When we neglect the means that God has ordained for. And when you say it, just plain out, it sounds so silly. But, but can I tell you something? You will lie to you. In that moment of sin, in that moment of selfishness, in that moment of laziness, you will say, this is more valuable than the means that God has ordained for me to receive his grace. And if you are not careful, you will believe that lie. Church, hear this call to repent. Just, just, you know, before I preach a message to you, I preach it to myself. This is a message that calls me to repentance. And this is a message that calls you to repentance. To repent of sinful attitudes and sinful actions. And this is a message that calls us to obey the commands of Christ. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterance. But examine everything carefully, holding fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the means that you have given us. We, God, forgive us where we have... <laughs> by neglect quenched your spirit God forgive us so long as even now in our present actions are still quenching spirit great repentance we ask God in, in inviting sin some of us have quenched the spirit And then we find it difficult to rejoice, to pray, to give thanks. God, we pray that your spirit would work among us, that you would, that you would bring to us repentance, that you would strengthen us in the spirit, that you would strengthen us by your word, that we might be a church 
distributing and displaying the conduct that you call for and the conduct that you are worthy of. We pray this in Christ's name.